Adam, thank you, brother. Well, good morning, church. In this rainy day, y'all get an extra Jesus star for being here. Can I do that? Am I allowed to do that? Probably not. That's okay. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, looking at verses 18 through 25. Out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word, will you please stand if you are able as it is read this morning? This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not till she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word together this morning, we pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would be opening our hearts and our minds, be drawing us closer to you this morning. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would come away this morning not simply knowing more about the Bible or about you, but that we would know you that our hearts and minds will be drawn towards you and refocused on you, recalibrated on you. We would see our Savior, Jesus Christ, in a more clear way this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So as Adam mentioned, we are, of course, in the second Sunday of Advent. The second of four Sundays that is a time of of preparation, of longing, of expectation for the coming of our Savior. Season of Advent is a season of looking back, of course, to the first coming of Christ, but also a season of looking forward to His second coming. We, living in between the Advents of Christ, look back and look forward. And so this year, as a church, we're going through and looking at the names of Jesus. These four particular names that we find in the Gospels, that we see that uh, identify our Redeemer and our Savior. And this morning we are looking at the name of Emmanuel. So as we get started this morning, I want to ask you to do something for me. Uh, picture a child in your mind. This could be you when you were younger. If you're young right now, it could be you right now. This could be an imaginary child if you don't want to picture yourself. It could be a theoretical kid. That's, that's okay. And you can picture, and you have options on this, you can picture either maybe, say, a five-year-old kid who has just broken something important in the family, broken a family heirloom, broken a family picture in an antique frame, or broken some antique vase or something that was in the house. Or you could be maybe a 16-year-old who's just wrecked the family car. You put yourself in whatever situation of those you want to, right? Either way, 
This child, this teenager, has just broken something that they cannot fix. They don't have the skill, they don't have the resources, they don't have the knowledge to be able to undo the damage that they have done. That's the situation. Now, into that situation, the child hears that their father is coming. The broken picture frame is on the floor, and they hear the garage door open because dad's come home from work. The teenager has to make that call home because the car's in a ditch and he can't do anything about it. And dad says, I'm on the way. In those cases, I believe we get a glimpse of the nature of the prophecy that the Almond family read for us this morning for our call to worship as they read Isaiah 7.14 in the lighting of our Advent wreath this morning. And we are introduced to this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Y'all, this phrase is such a common phrase around this time of year. If you listen to Christmas radio stations or Christmas playlists, you're going to hear, O come, O come, Emmanuel, dozens of times in dozens of renditions. So many versions of that song. It's a great song. I love the hymn. But you're going to hear it, whether you're listening for it or not. If you go to the Christmas decoration section of Hobby Lobby or Target, you're going to see Emmanuel on everything. If you want it on a Christmas card, if you want it on a blanket, if you want it on a pillow, if you want it on a shirt, if you want it on a yard decoration, wrapping paper, whatever. You're going to see it. You're going to get to it. This idea of Emmanuel, God with us, is a phrase that is heard so much, is sung so much, is put on so many Christmas cards and Christmas decorations that we may, I'm afraid, have lost the meaning of the truth and lost the truth that this phrase, this name, is more profound than we could probably dare imagine. If you've grown up in the church, there's a danger that we can become over-familiar with the Gospel. And what I mean by that is we begin to take the wondrous truth of the Gospel for granted. And biblical truths like Emmanuel, God with us, receive much more of a, yeah, of course, reaction than the wonder and amazement to which they're due. And even on a more secular level. Hold on. Boop. There we go. All right. <laughs> Hold on. There we go. That's where I want to be. All right. Apologies. And even on a more secular level, it, during this Christmas season, Christmas is such a time of, of peace and of joy and family and, and all things good that even if you've never even darkened the doors of a church, you have no idea about the Bible, about the gospel, you have a general idea of a cultural sense of Christmas, but then somewhere on a card or somewhere you saw Emmanuel, God with us, you associate that with Christmas time and just assume, well, that must be a good thing. Emmanuel, God with us, that's a good thing, right? But y'all want to submit this. That the original hearers of this promise, way back in Isaiah, could wonder, 
Emmanuel, God with us. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? How do I take this? The kid with the broken picture on the floor, the teenager with the car in the ditch whose dad is coming may wonder, okay, dad's promised that he's coming. I know he's coming and he will soon be here with me. But what does that mean for me? Is he coming to bring justice? Is he coming to bring vengeance? Is he coming to hold me accountable for the wrong which I've done, which is clearly evident here? Or is dad coming to step into the mess that I've made? Is dad coming to step into the midst of this mess that I've made? And is he going to fix the mess that I cannot fix? God's people in the book of Isaiah, upon hearing this initial promise that the virgin will be with child and you will call his name Emmanuel, is God coming to bring judgment? Or is God coming to bring salvation? This is why the fulfillment of that Isaiah 7.14 prophecy in Matthew 1, our text this morning, is so important. And why we're focusing on both of them together. What we see from the prophecy from Isaiah 7.14 that Matthew brings forward and says is now fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. What we see is that by taking the name Jesus... God gave the answer to His people's prayers. When He promised long ago was now fulfilled in the birth of a virgin's son. Jesus is God with us indeed, but more than that, He is God for us. This morning I want to walk through three aspects and points about the idea and concept of Emmanuel, God with us from our text in Matthew 1 this morning. I want to look at actually the danger of Emmanuel, the promise of Emmanuel, and what it means that Emmanuel is with us and for us. First off, the danger of Emmanuel. As well known and as often read as Isaiah 7.14 is, the context of those verses is not nearly as well Known. So very briefly, church his, uh, Old Testament history, let's dive in and just kind of give you, set the stage of Isaiah 7. Those days were around 735 B.C. There were a time of war and a time of fear for God's people. The kingdom has been divided. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah was under the threat of attack of this coalition of the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. And actually what happened was another nation, Assyria, had been threatening on the doorstep. Israel and Syria said, hey Judah, join, in, join with us in an alliance against Assyria. And Judah and King Ahaz um, decided not to. These unlikely allies had forced, they're, they're coming to try and rise, uh, to, to go against this threat of this uh, conquering empire known as Assyria. Judah had refused to join this alliance, preferring instead to try to get this treaty with Assyria. But now the combined armies of Israel and Syria had besieged Jerusalem during the reign of King Ahaz, this descendant of David, who is listed in the genealogy there in the first 16 chapters of uh, first 16 verses of Matthew 1. So God has sent his prophet Isaiah to go to King Ahaz, king of Judah, to comfort him, to assure him, to trust in God. 
Not in military alliance, not in treaties, but in God himself. And so God offered something to Ahaz. said, Ahaz, I want to strengthen your faith. I want to give you visible proof that I am indeed here for you, is what God is saying to Ahaz. So he says, Ahaz, so he says, Ahaz ask the Lord your God through the prophet Isaiah, ask the Lord your God for a sign. And don't skimp on what you ask. Go big. Ask for whatever you want, from the deepest depths to the highest heights. I want you to trust me, so let me prove to you that you can trust me with some big sign. But Ahaz's response is, I dare not ask the Lord for a sign. He's covering actually a lack of faith and actually quotes God's law from Deuteronomy 6.16. I will not put the Lord to, to the test. But he does that not as an example of faith, but as to cover up a lack of faith. And despite Isaiah's promise of protection from the Lord, King Ahaz does not trust God because he does not have a relationship with him. And so God responds. Through the prophet Isaiah, God responds. He says, all right, you dare not ask for something. I will tell you the sign that I'm going to give you. And it's a sign that has stood through the ages, not just as deep as the grave or as high as heaven, but something that would actually bring the heights down to us. This promise of Isaiah 7.14 that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. But again, to King Ahaz, who had refused to trust in God, to the people of Judah who were putting their trust in treaties and military alliances and not in God, this promise of God with us for them and even for us, as long as we are in our sin, as long as we are not trusting in the atoning, saving work of Jesus Christ, this promise of Emmanuel is actually bad news. Though committed to doing His chosen people good, God's history with Israel demonstrates the way that sin undermines and corrupts and renders God with us bad news, not good news necessarily. If the promise of God is only that He will come to be with us to deal with our sin, that He's going to deal with us, He's going to deal with the mess we've made, then we would be right to despair. In the movie A Christmas Story, there's a scene where Ralphie, the older brother, has done something he shouldn't do and he's about to get in trouble. Dad is coming home and Randy, the little brother, hides into the kitchen cabinet crying, Daddy's going to kill Ralphie. And the mom is like, no, Daddy's not going to kill Ralphie. And Randy knows. He's like, I've seen Dad. I know Dad. Daddy's going to kill Ralphie. And he's sure about this because of what Ralphie has done. If our only understanding is we have sinned, we have broken God's law, and God says, I'm coming, I'm coming to be with you, then we ought to be hiding under the kitchen cabinet because we have no leg to stand on. We have no basis for our standing. That brings us to the second point here, the promise of Emmanuel. As Adam mentioned when he was reading from Ezekiel, there are at least 28 times in the Old Testament that God makes this promise, I will be their God and they will be my people. 
When I was in seminary at RTS, uh, Professor Blair Smith repeated that over and over and over again for us in our covenant theology class. Y'all, if you get nothing else out of the idea of what is covenant theology, it is that promise that God promises and he assures us that he will be our God and we will be his people. And God will do whatever it takes to make that happen. As Adam mentioned, there are at least 28 times, and actually I've, I've printed them. So if you want a copy, I've got a few copies up here on the, on the stage copy. If you want to get the 28 Old Testament references and a few New Testament references that reinforce that too. So you can read through it and see God promising over and over and over again that He will be our God and we will be His people. And throughout the Old Testament, that is made real in, in things like a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It's made real and realized in the Ark of the Covenant that God has His people make. It's made real in the tabernacle and then the temple. And when the people of the Old Testament said, God has promised to be our God and we are His people, and they could look at a building, look at a hilltop, look at a thing and point to it and go, see, that's God's proof of that. But all of those things, all those natural phenomena, those objects, those buildings, were what we call types, shadows, pointing forward to the ultimate true fulfillment of God being our God and we being His people. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise was not in a phenomenon, not in an object, not in a building, but in a person. Which brings us now, of course, deep into the Matthew promise our passage in matthew 1 where the gospel writer makes the explicit point that the birth of jesus is the ultimate true fulfillment of this isaiah prophecy from isaiah 7 14 matthew makes the point to answer the question that the people of judah should have been asking way back in 730 whatever bc whether or not they actually were And he answers the question, it says, yes, the coming of Emmanuel is indeed good news. It's a promise of hope. It's a promise that God is not going to come and deal with you wretched people the way you deserve. It's a promise that God is going to step into our mess as one of us to fix, to redeem that which we could not. Matthew's gospel is full of fulfillment. I love that phrase. It's full of fulfillment. That is, it's full of instances where Matthew points out how a specific thing happened in order to fulfill an Old Testament prophetic text. And here in Matthew 1.23, we have the first one of those. Well, actually, 1.22, where he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then for our benefit, Matthew goes on and says, which means, God with us. Our passage here this morning that I read follows after Matthew 1 through 17. And if you flip back a page and look at Matthew 1, 17, you'll notice that this is that genealogy, that Matthew starts his gospel with this genealogical account going from Abraham to Jesus. Now, we didn't read that text, but I encourage you to go back and read it. And if, you're in, if you find the idea of reading through so many names and so many weird-sounding names to us, um, I would encourage you maybe go listen to Andrew Peterson sing it. One of my favorite songs. It's called Matthew's Begats. It's on Behold the Lamb of God. And it, he just sings Matthew 1 through 17. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. On a more practical 
uh, Des and Jenny Oatridge were a young couple working with Wycliffe Bible translators. In 1960, the family arrived in Papua New Guinea and went to live in a village among the, I'm going to get this wrong, I apologize, Binumarian tribe. I probably said that wrong. Apologies. But it's a small tribe shrinking in numbers with an unwritten language. So they go in and they're doing that hard work of translating. First, figuring out the language of these people, creating a written language for them, and then beginning to teach them how to read and write, and then beginning to translate. This is a long process, and Wycliffe does an amazing, amazing job with it. And after several years, they were able to produce a copy of the New Testament in their language. But it wasn't a complete copy. They skipped over some bits. And he had skipped over this genealogy, thinking, well, this is not the most compelling parts of the New Testament. We'll get to that later. But the people were unimpressed. They were more impressed with the vehicles that they had brought in, the cars and things, than they were with with the New Testament. And for almost 10 years, until finally after 10 years, a complete copy of the New Testament was finished with Matthew's genealogy. And when that complete text was read with the genealogy included the village chieftain came to Des in a meeting and after it was read and realizing that the people are now on the edge of their seat the genealogy is what captivated them like what in the world why and then one of the members of the tribe asked why didn't you tell us this before but for that people No one recorded the ancestors of fictional beings. No one recorded the ancestors of just spiritual ideas. You only recorded the ancestors of real people in real history. And what the genealogy communicated to those people in Papua New Guinea, what it communicates to us today in 2023, is that Jesus is not just an idea. Emmanuel is not simply a concept. It's not a theological construct. Emmanuel is real. Real person in real history, grounded in real fulfillment, the real birth of the real man, Jesus Christ. And in Matthew's Gospel, it's striking to see how he explains the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Again, all this, Matthew observes, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All this points to these actions that we see there in Isaiah 7.14 conceiving, birthing, calling, each given narrative and explanation in Matthew 18, verse 21. 18 through 21. In verse 18, the Son is conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. In verses 19 and 20, this angelic revelation of God to Joseph explains how this Son of David would be in the line of his father, David. Joseph's Davidic heritage is highlighted to stress the Davidic identity, the kingly identity, the promise-fulfilled identity of this son of Mary. And then the name of the son is given. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This name is notable. Well, for one, if you read the prophecy from Isaiah, it's like, I thought his name was supposed to be Emmanuel. Now his name's Jesus. What gives? Instead of Emmanuel, he's Jesus. Literally, Joshua, Yeshua. God saves. Yahweh saves. This is not necessarily a discrepancy, but a clarification. God with us, of course, as we've already said, is only good news if God comes to atone for sin. 
Had Mary's son been only called Emmanuel, it would have left the question mark behind God with us. But the name Jesus makes it an exclamation point. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now we could preach a whole sermon just on that line. Jesus comes not just to save us from the penalty of our sin, not just to save us from the guilt of our sin, but to save us in totality, holistically, from our sin. From the penalty of it, from the guilt of it, from the effects of it, to save us truly from our sin. Which brings us to the last point here, that Emmanuel means God with us, but by giving him the name Jesus, we now know that he's God with us and for us. Again, had Jesus come only to take the name Emmanuel, Matthew's fulfillment might be more exact, more literal, just word to word, but it would have been, again, ambiguous. Is God coming to bring salvation or judgment? But the name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins, is the answer to the people's prayers. What God had promised long ago, some 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, is now answered in the birth of the virgin's son. Matthew explains that while Jesus is his birth name, Emmanuel is his existential reality. In the Old Testament, Emmanuel was manifested, of course, like we said, in places and buildings and things. God's presence is now manifested in a baby born, laying in a manger in Bethlehem. Indeed, what was transient and temporary in the Old Testament, temples, tabernacles that could be packed up and torn down, was now made permanent and eternal in the man Jesus. The Son would bring salvation from Israel to all of the world, to all of the nations. He would grow up to be the suffering servant who would give his life as a ransom for many. He would shed his blood to ratify a new covenant, thus securing the forgiveness of his people. And he would gather disciples from every nation on the earth, uniting them into his church that he would dwell with forever. This promise of Emmanuel is reinforced in the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before his ascension. In the Great Commission, he tells them what to do and he tells them why to do it because I am with you always. Emmanuel was not a temporary thing, was not an isolated thing, was not only for a short time, but Emmanuel is an eternal truth, an eternal reality. By taking on our flesh, God permanently connects Himself through covenant to His people. The incarnation, which Matthew is describing here, is this blessed reality for all of eternity. The Son of God will dwell with His people as one of us. And we also see that through the incarnation, the Son of God is uniting to His covenant people. In taking on flesh, He does not take on the corrupted flesh of Adam, which is why this, the virgin birth was so critical. This isn't necessarily a sermon about that, but I want to highlight it briefly. The virgin birth is not an idea abstract, just, oh, theoretical, or it's not just a metaphorical idea, it's a grounded reality. Jesus took on flesh that was like of all humanity in this fallen world, yet not corrupted, not sinful, not fallen. He is the new man. 
The new Adam that Paul writes about in Romans 5. Through the sin of one man we all die. Through the life of the, of the second Adam we all live. He was and is and forever will be Emmanuel. I want to close this morning by quoting a longer quote from the probably the best sermon ever given on this subject. Maybe a bold statement, but I'm going to stand by it. C.H. Spurgeon, 1854, Christmas Eve, at the New Park Street Chapel in London, preaching on Isaiah 7, 14 through 15. He says this, Emmanuel, it is wisdom's mystery. God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wings of science cannot fly so high, and the perceiving and the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let Satan come to you suddenly, and you do but whisper that word, God with us. He falls back. Confounded and confused, Satan trembles when he hears that name, God with us. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor acknowledge his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is the sufferer's comfort is the balm of his woe, is the alleviation of his misery, is the sleep which God gives to his beloved, is their rest after exertion and toil. Ah, and to finish, God with us is eternity's sonnet. It is heaven's hallelujah. It is the shout of the glorified. It is the song of the redeemed. It is the chorus of angels, the everlasting oratio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. You know, we've already sung this morning the brilliant, wonderful Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I'm sure you will hear, probably sing that song at least once or twice more this Advent season. Let's not confuse the Lord's coming with the arrival of Santa Claus. One comes because you've earned it. Santa Claus comes because... He's not real, okay? Just, let's just get that out. And I'm sorry if there's a kid here that I just ruined Christmas for you. Just come talk to me. Santa comes because you've earned it, because you were good enough, because you deserve the presence under the tree, the presence in the stockings, the ones with your name on it. Christ comes, God, Emmanuel comes to dwell with us, not because we've been good, but because he is good. And in his goodness, he sends Jesus to ransom us from captivity to sin, to make us ready to dwell with him both now and forevermore. Y'all, this is the good news of Christmas. The reason why Jesus is the name above all names. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we contemplate deeply the truth of the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, this is comfort because the name of Emmanuel is Jesus. This is comfort because God has come to dwell among us not to hold us accountable, not to hold us to task, not to make us pay, but Emmanuel has come to be our salvation, to save us from our sins. 
We celebrate that this morning. And we sing that praise now in Jesus' name. Amen.